Okay, so um, in the first in the, uh, the first part there, we looked at the uh, different visions in the Old Testament regarding what it is to bring eschatological shalom. Uh, should we use violence or not? We also looked at the Pax, uh, 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 the Pax Romana. We looked at then we dove into the teaching of Jesus, saying that Jesus commands that we should love our enemies. And what we've touched on in some of the conversations, um, the one we just had is actually when we've, it's unusual we've depoliticized. And I was chatting a bit to Katie and she just said that the, we all know that Jesus says this and then we can ask some obvious questions like, is it okay to carpet bomb or drone strike your enemy if you were falling out teaching Jesus? And we'd all say, no, it's not. But actually, as soon as you've answered that, it has huge implications about how we should uh, view uh, conflict in the modern world. But I left you with that question before about um, are Christians not, if we take Jesus seriously, does it not just mean that we let evil uh, triumph um, and injustice win? Do we run the risk of becoming doormat disciples? Does this mean that uh, people who are in, whether it be uh, family conflict or abusive situations with an evildoer should, uh, in a sense, not resist? Um, and does it mean that, uh, you know, uh, the Taliban or um, ISIS win because there's no one to fight um, to fight against them? which leads us in this section now, which I'm calling Jesus' call for non-violent uh, engagement, which kind of leads to the conclusion. But let's just build up the argument a little bit. So in, just prior to the passage we've had read, Jesus speaks on a similar topic and he says this, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. A quote here from Walter Wink. Many otherwise devout Christians simply dismiss Jesus' teaching about nonviolence out of hand as impractical idealism. And with good reason. Turn the other cheek has come to implies, imply a passive doormat-like quality that has made the Christian way seem cowardly and complicit in the face of injustice. Resist not evil seems to break the back of all opposition to evil and to counsel submission. Going the extra mile has become a platitude, meaning nothing more than extend yourself and appears to encourage, encourage collaboration with the oppressor. Jesus' teaching, viewed this way, is impractical, masochistic, and even suicidal. An invitation to bullies and spouse batterers to wipe up the floor with their supine Christian victims. So let's just go through this passage. Let's go through it slowly. But let's be, bear in mind that a, an obvious reading from this, from the surface level, should be that we are not to resist 
the one who is evil. Uh, let's substitute evil for, oh yeah, thank you. Whoever said share screen. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, yeah, do not resist the one who is evil. Uh, let's substitute the one who is evil for people who embody evil. Do not resist ISIS. Do not resist Hitler. Do not resist the person who is uh, uh, is, is, is doing a, a domestic uh, domestic violence. Um, that would be a, a plain reading of that text, which has meant that some Christians have indeed followed that approach. So the Christian point of peacemaking is is non-resistance. You just you know, you, you you try to avoid, in a sense, the evil one taking you out, but you just don't you just don't get involved. My my kingdom is is not of this world. Um, you know, I'm just a passing through, and you just you don't get involved in social pod. The other one, and this is probably more maybe not normative, is for us to say, I cannot be right. That's not right. I'm I'm gonna for the sake of justice, I'm gonna go against the teaching of Jesus because evil needs to be resisted. Um, and some would say evil needs to be resisted, and that's why we go the way of the gun. We go the way of the sword. Um, so let's go through it uh, line by line. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for an oof. A tooth for an oof. A tooth for a tooth. Jesus announces that we no longer need to keep the Old Testament law because a new ethic is at work. The ethical code of violence as a response to violence is now over. Here, Jesus is not just talking about private disagreement. And this is how some people try to change Jesus' teaching. This is just about conflict in the workplace. And it's not about conflict with uh, oppressive governments or uh, it, it, it shouldn't be involved in how we, you know, the question of should we, should we kill other people? It's to do with private, the private sphere. However, Jesus is not just talking about private disagreement, but it's challenging the major tenants of first century jurisprudence as found in the Old Testament and amongst other ancient cultures. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth uh, occurs three times in the Pentateuch in the books of Moses, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. Um, Gandhi uh, remarked this, he said, an eye for an eye will only make the whole world blind. Or as Martin Luther King said, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a dark night already devoid of stars. But Jesus continues in verse 39 to say, do not resist. Um, do, do not resist the one who is evil. Um, I'll go over the. I've said this before, but I could just go over it again. There's the, the two immediate and understandable responses to this. Some see Jesus' command as a call to passivity, non-resistance and compliance in the face of evil. Others, perceiving the implications of this as functionally irrelevant to a real world of power, protest and politics, they reject this teaching of Jesus as unworkable. Jesus, some would argue, is asking us to be doormats in the face of evil and collude with the oppressors. 
as American President JFK famously said in a speech, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So perhaps we should ignore the teaching of Jesus and just have Jesus as our spiritual saviour so that he does not meddle in our economic or political lives. However, we're going to do a close reading of this passage, and I want us to encourage us to see that taking the teaching of Jesus seriously does not mean we need to be doormat disciples. Instead, we're to do what Walter Winks calls a third way. One way, responding to violence with violence. The other way could be called non-resisting love. So uh, Reinhard uh, Neuber, Christian ethicist, he advocated this. But Jesus offers us a third way, the way of non-violent resistance. So let's take this word resist. Do not resist. Uh, Anti-stemi, the one who is evil. Well, the word resist as a translation is unhelpful. For the Greek word behind this is anti stenai which means literally to against, anti, the stand. And what many translators have overlooked is that uh, steno, or taking the stand, is most often used in the Greek version of the Old Testament as a technical term for warfare. It describes the way that opposing armies would line up against each other to take a stand and fight with violence. So you've got the stand, which is when violence is going to, you know, oppose violence. Um, but Jesus is against the stand. Um, when you get the slide sent through, you might just want to read that sort of dictionary article on the side, which is sort of providing some of the level of argumentation for what I'm saying. So Jesus is it's not so much saying do not resist. He's saying don't take part in the stand. Don't take part in violently opposing the enemy. So if that's the case, we shouldn't read this passage as an encouragement towards passivity, non-resistance and compliance in the face of evil, but rather as a command from Jesus that we are to refrain from violence, even when we are faced with oppressors. Uh, many scholars are in agreement with this uh, translation. Uh, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, Tom Wright, they are the same person. I spent a, a good number of years thinking they were two different people. Uh, in fact, I wrote some theology essays, which was having Tom Wright di disagreeing with N.T. Wright. And I realised they were the <laughs> same person here. Um, he translates the words of Jesus here as, do not violently oppose an evildoer. So you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say you don't violently oppose an evildoer. And then Jesus comes out with three examples immediately after. Um, in this next section, I'm drawing heavily on the works, on, on the interpretation of this passage, which have developed, been developed by Walter Wink and Ronald uh, Sider. Um, so in verse 39, Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, then turn to him the other. Right. What I'd like you to do, I would like you to uh, look at the look at the screen, look at my face. Um, you've got to strike me on the 
right cheek. You're going to strike me on the right cheek. So put up your put up your hands, and you're going to strike me on the right cheek, on on the on the right cheek. You're not allowed to use your um, left hand. Well, why is that? Because uh, one, most people are right-handed, and um, in the ancient world, as in some parts of the world, the the left hand isn't you know it's sometimes even referred to as the, the poo-poo hand, the hand that you would use for certain activities, but you wouldn't use in everyday life as such. So you've got to strike me on the right cheek using your right hand. I'm just trying to think if the visuals of Zoom work for this. Okay, so um, you're going to use your... In, in fact, we've got the... Um, yeah, if you're going to strike me on the on my left cheek... You could use your right hand and just do a hook like that, couldn't you? Yeah. If you're going to strike me on my right cheek, how are you going to do it? Give me a hand. Go on, Anne. Explain to me what you'd like, you'd like to, to do to my face. What if you, you had to strike on the right cheek, you'd have to do it with your back of your hand, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd have to use the back of your hand. In the time of Jesus, to strike someone on the right cheek was to hit someone with a backhand and receiving a backhanded slap implies that you are a person of inferior standing. You're a slave. You're, um, this, this is how you treat slaves. You would treat women and you would treat children. It's a sign of inferiority to give somebody a slap. And Jesus says in this situation, you, could, you should turn the other cheek. So imagine that you've hit me on my, uh, you've given me a backhanded slap on my right cheek, and I turn to you the other cheek. How are you going to hit this one? Anne, pick on you. How are you going to hit this one now? It's my left side. With my palm of my hand. With your, with your, right, with your right hand. Yeah. Yeah, you might. Yeah. yeah. You can give me give, give me a give me give me a punch. It wouldn't be a backhanded, or you'd you'd, you'd hit me like so. And it, it it seems, or at least it's possible, that Jesus is saying, "Hit um, hit me again if needs be, but you will treat me as an equal and with dignity." So Jesus isn't advocating if someone hits you, you hit them back, but you turn. The other cheek, that when someone treated you with indignity, then you stand and you say, no, if you're going to fight, fight me. And say, if you're going to hit me, hit me as a man. Hitting back would bring uh, back would bring more violence. But this potentially, and maybe Jesus isn't saying a rule here for every situation, but this kind of the, the thinking behind it, this creative, nonviolent and cheeky response exposes the unjust structures of society and prepares the ethical imagination for a new way of doing life. So that's that first, uh, first passage there. In the second example, verse 40, Jesus says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, oh, this is advocating doormat discipleships. Just, you know, people can just come in and, and, and take what they like. Actually, the, the context here, um, as related to last session, is a world of economic exploitation in which the wealthy and the powerful 
would bring the poor person who is in who can't pay back a large debt and they'd bring them into court. Uh, unethical business practices and oppressive economic policies were rife in the ancient world. And when the person of power as payment for the debt requires your inner garment as payment, in the ancient world, you would just wear two garments. Then Jesus suggests that we should give him the other outer garment as well. Now, in the Old Testament, there's lots of rules about you should never, ever take somebody's, you know, you, you shouldn't take both people's garments. But Jesus, in that situation when you're in court and someone says, right, I'm going to have your garment here. I'll just leave you one. You should offer your other cloak. If you only wear two garments, the taking one and you offer the second, you're going to end up in the nude, standing there but naked in court. And you would potentially not only expose your nakedness to those in court, but you would also be exposing just how unjust the economic structures are in reducing the poor to open shame. As Sider says, by stripping naked, the debtor exposes the cruelty not only of the creditor, but also of the oppressive system the creditor represents. The entire system by which debtors are oppressed has been publicly unmasked. Rather than recommending a passive response to injustice, Jesus urges a dramatic, non-violent protest. Um, <laughs> the closest I've come to this... <laughs> Uh, closest I've come to this, we were uh, protesting down in London, and I was outside St Paul's uh, St Paul's Cathedral, and we were holding some climate signs, and some police came over to uh, uh, to searches. I was there with Katie and uh, a few of her friends as well, and I was dressed as a vicar, well, because because <laughs> I am a vicar, and they said searching. Katie went for the silent, dignified posture as she was being uh, searched. And isn't that right, Katie? Anything you want to say about that? Yeah, I, th I thought yeah. it was very dignified. <laughs> quite quiet, dignified, not particularly going to engage, search me, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not happy about this, but this is happening. I thought, um, <laughs> instead of the search, I, I started taking my clergy shirt off. <laughs> and then I realised, hang on, I'm not going to go fully naked, so I'll put it back on. But I thought that was it, a creative response to something where they're trying to uh th there was intimidation involved it was like yeah nothing to hide here yeah, yeah do you want to you know um yeah and then i also realized i was with some people who i work with as well so i'll stop that okay so there's two examples of you just turning your cheek and then uh if some anyone would see you take your tunic let him have your cloak as well and then the third one if anyone forces you to go one mile go with him uh two um Uh, the third example takes place in the context of Roman military occupation. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Let's pick up Tom Wright's, N.T. Wright's understanding of what is going on here. Roman soldiers had the right to force civilians to carry their equipment for one mile. But the law was quite strict. It forbade them to make someone go more than that. 
Turn the tables on them, advises Jesus. Don't fret and fume and plot revenge. Copy your generous God. Go a second mile and astonish the soldier and perhaps alarm him. What if my commanding officer found out? Uh, astonish the soldier with the news that there's a different way to be human, a way which doesn't plot revenge, which doesn't join the armed resistance movement, but which wins God's kinds of victory over violence and injustice. So in our passage here, Jesus saying, you know, it's not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We are not to violently oppose an evildoer. And then Jesus gives three examples here, um, which there are some interpreters. And this isn't, it's, um, there are other interpretations, but these certainly aren't minority interpretations of, hang on, this is just sort of a creative uh, non-violent resistance. Walter Wink uh, sums up some of the, in a sense, the, the principles which happened with this kind of approach. Um, you know, what are the advantages of this non-violent creative response? Well, you seize the moral initiative. You're finding a creative alternative to violence. You're asserting your own humanity and dignity as a person. You meet force with ridicule or humour. You break the cycle of humiliation. You refuse to submit or to accept the inferior position. You expose the injustice of the system. You take control of the power dynamic. You shame the oppressor into repentance. You stand your ground. You make the powers make decisions for which they are not prepared. Um, Something has just happened in, in Britain with uh, Insulate Britain uh, protesters um, where they were threatened uh, with an injunction that if they continued to block a road, they could end up in prison for a long time. And many people went out into the streets and got arrested again and ended up in prison. It's in, you know, that, that threat is not going to intimidate us, put us in prison. As one person was in the dock, they said, if you put us in prison, You'll see 10 people take my place. And sure enough, that weekend, I think, um, was it like 150 or so uh, insular Britain protesters were arrested for sitting on a road um, as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going into whether it's the right or the wrong thing about insular Britain, but the thing of when the system doubles down on you, like you, you, you do something which they're perhaps not expecting. Um, be willing to suffer rather than retaliate. Force the oppressor to see you in a new light. Deprive the oppressor of a situation where a show of force is effective. Be willing to undergo the penalty of breaking unjust laws. Die to fear of the old order and its rule. Seek the oppressor's transformation. Um, just prior to Jesus' ministry, there was a protest in the temple um, I'll get some of the details wrong here, so if I'm slightly wrong, sort of apologise, which is where one of the Roman leaders put an eagle in the temple, a symbol of empire in the temple, and some young men went to strip down the eagle, and they were arrested and, I think, were crucified. But then the next day, thousands of people came into the temple 
and refused to go until the eagle went. The Roman soldiers came out and said, if you don't leave, we're going to kill you. So these uh, Jewish uh, people, they put their necks out and said, well, you'll have to come and slay all of us. And Rome backed down. The eagle was removed. So there are examples of non-violent resistance before Jesus. But Jesus puts that together with love of enemy. Um, so the good thing is we've got uh, plenty of time for uh, discussion here. What I'd like to do, we're going to come back to this a little bit in a later session. But in the chat function now, can you think of any actions which are non-violent, which seek to bring change to oppressive situations? So they could be creative, they could be amusing, could be something you've seen on the news, it could be something you've participated in. Um, as in, I don't think Jesus is just saying, there's only three ways of responding. I think it's what he's doing, he's using three examples, and we can probably think of other examples in which non-violent resistance has been used against oppression. <laughs> 